welcome. Welcome everyone to another episode of Ben's Den. Today, my guest is a favorite or probably my most favorite physician in the country. I've had the privilege of knowing him for more than seven years now. He's a board certified physician, internal medicine, weight loss medicine, obesity, and preventive care. And he is founder and president of multiple companies. Dr. Alex Foxman, welcome to Ben's Den. Thanks, Pranam. I really appreciate it. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself to our audience, uh, Dr. Foxman. Tell a little bit about the work you do in Southern California and the other states that you operate in. Sure. So I'm a, by profession, I'm a board certified internal medicine physician. Uh, I also recently got board certified in obesity medicine as well. Since residency, when I graduated in 2003, I've had many different medical practices and opportunities. I have a private semi-concierge practice in Beverly Hills, California called the Beverly Hills Institute. I have a completely mobile medical practice where we serve the frail, elderly, and disabled population in Southern California. It's a group medical practice called Mobile Physician Associates. I have a, a completely virtual medical weight loss program that I recently started about a year ago, uh, helping people lose weight, get healthier with cutting edge medications, uh, health management, coaching and oversight. And I've started uh, several innovative value-based companies in the past, including several accountable care organizations, both yep. in risk and non-risk environments. So I hope you find time to sleep. Yeah, all that's right. All these activities. Sleep, yeah. Sleep's okay. overrated. Good. <laughs> So, Dr. Foxman, today I want to talk to you about something that you and I have had multiple conversations on this subject in the past. It's something that is vital and kind of like the final mile for us to connect our ecosystem, which is engaging the consumer in their care delivery, in their care continuum. So let's start with a very basic, uh, you know, rationalization of where are we today in terms of engaging patients in their own care? The stats that I read, the experiences that we have as a company, it's not very encouraging. There is progress, but where we should be as an industry, be thinking about the nature of the work that we do, the, it's underwhelming. I, I read uh, things like, on an average, as an industry, we spend about $25 billion in direct-to-consumer marketing. But if you look at the trust factor that patients have back on the key stakeholders, pharmacy, insurance, hospitals, and physicians, every constituent is less than 20%. So it's just a very imbalanced equation where patients are not part of their own care delivery process. They don't have the ownership. They don't had, they're not a stakeholder. How do we, what's your point of view on it? Well, I think, I think consumer engagement, patient engagement is a huge, huge, important part of us being able to, number one, provide better care, but also to overall reduce the care for a population. What has always been missed and what I've always uh, griped about and have always been very attentive to is to make sure that the patients are part of their health journey, basically. They have to understand what is happening to them. They have to understand right. the, the diagnoses, the treatments. They have to have a good sticky attention factor with their healthcare team. All of these things will actually drive improvement in not just quality of care, but also reduction in costs as well. If you have a patient who's not trusting their providers, if you have a patient who's miseducated, if you have a patient who knows, for example, that if they don't, if they pick up the phone, they're not going to get someone, they're going to end up in higher cost, fragmented places of service. So if we're able to engage in the patient, be able to make them accountable for their care, just like we are accountable, and make sure they know that when they have a problem, we're there for them. I believe that's overall much, much better for the entire healthcare ecosystem. And of course, that resonates with, with our own experience when we were helping our customers navigate the pandemic. Engaging the patient was a necessity, not an option at that point. So what we realized is, and this was in New York City, and obviously it was one of the worst hit pandemic hotspots. We worked with one of our largest physician groups there to create a mobile experience that would help the patients schedule their vaccination appointment and get COVID result tests, both. 
It was so amazing. We saw a 300% increase in the patient engagement with the respective practices when the need was that critical, that mission critical, right? And the design was keep it simple, keep it meaningful. And the patients will engage. The patient's family will engage. And then if you think about post-pandemic, that same patient population, we had a 50% drop in the engagement, but the other 50% stayed on because we worked with this provider group to continue with virtual visits, to continue with education-based content and things like that. So I think the experience that we had is that if you keep it simple, if you keep it meaningful, patients will engage. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think out of uh, sometimes uh, hardships, out of problems, out, yes. out of challenges, come great, great opportunities, as yes. long as you know where to look for them. And I right. think that the COVID pandemic, though it had a lot of terrible things that came along with it, one of the greatest things that came out of it as a positive was the way we were uh, able to change the behaviors of how providers and and patients alike could get their medical care. Telehealth has a great, great opportunity for us to do that. Getting into, in many places, getting into the car, driving to the doctor's office, spending 30, 40 minutes in the waiting room, spending seven minutes in the exam room, and then doing this all over again, and sometimes multiple times for multiple providers, is many times not only not possible, but also causes patients not to get the care they need. In addition, there are people who are in rural areas that can't get care. Imagine that everyone could get the same care at any time. Now, we can't do everything through telehealth, things are getting very, very interesting. It's no longer just talking to someone. There's all sorts of devices through digital wearables and remote wearables and, and, and different things like that that could really help us almost be in the patient's home at any time. And I think that that is a, a huge value because before every time a patient, even in my office in fee-for-service, for example, needed to be seen, we would say, come into the office. Even for things that we know potentially yeah. could have been done just through a telehealth visit, or maybe we manage them through a telehealth visit and stabilize them or give an empiric diagnosis and then bring those people in to, to confirm that if we need to, or if they don't get better. And that's the way we operate in all of my different medical practices right now, including my practices that are in risk-based programs right now. We found a huge, huge opportunity to significantly reduce the utilization of higher cost services, ER, urgent care, hospitalization. And that is very significant for all of us to be able to uh, to succeed in the value-based care and risk-based environment, which is really upon us. And if, I, if you think about it, Dr. Foxman, we've, we've been documenting the strain on our entire system, you know, especially post-pandemic, especially with our frontline workers, right? There's burnout. 42% are reported, uh, reporting burnout. There are physicians that are uh, dropping their entire profession because they're not seeing the value or they've lost their purpose in the field. And one of the things I think about is that if you're able to answer this this vital question around, are you seeing the right patients at the right time in the right way? Then you can not only allow for your own quality of life to be balanced, but think about from the patient's perspective. The patient then understands and realizes that they are engaging the care teams only when needed for the right reasons. In fact, we are working on this project in upstate New York where they are challenged by staffing issues and they came to us saying, hey, can you have a data driven approach to recommend the right uh, you know, capacity planning for our 72 locations. And our initial approach to that was, yes, I can look at the data and tell you how you should staff based on patient volumes, but you are not leveraging the non-face-to-face opportunities, whether it is synchronous via telemedicine or asynchronous. Like you said, sometimes you don't even need to see the patient. All you need to do is a reminder, a text message, send a result on the phone in a secure way so they don't have to call or come in to get their test result. You know, Absolutely. Uh, very excited 
to see where that goes. Obviously, I think there will be a few iterations before we get this to a point where it's actually working. But if you don't do this, I don't know how we'll sustain as a system. It, I, I definitely agree. I've always been a big believer seeing the right patient at the right time in the right place. Myself, just as a physician, I'm sitting here in my office. For me, the most frustrating days are when I have people that come in that don't have to be here. Yeah. This is not this is not a picnic. This is not a, a holiday trip. This is not a vacation. When you come to the doctor, you expect some sort of value to come from that. Not yeah. just for the patient themselves, but for the healthcare system, for everyone, including the doctor. I want to see people that I could help. And if my rooms are filled with people that I'm not really providing good care for, it frustrates me. And it also provides, I think, a, a lower level of, of care for everyone around. I'd rather see the right person for double or triple the time than see double or triple the people for the same amount of time that I'm not doing as much good for. So, so that's why I think, and that actually takes me to things like data, because yeah, how yeah. do you how do you predict this? You can't just predict this by, or remember this by just, you know, the people that are, or the patients that are in your office or, or in your practice. You have to have the data that really solidifies why people need certain services when they need them. And also when things change, you want to have the data and the ability to find that so that you get those people in as soon as possible. So on that, Dr. Foxman, the way we are coming at this from a from an engineering and data science standpoint is to look at, okay, you cannot go by just by based on a clinical risk score alone, because that doesn't tell the whole story. Because your clinical risk score is not even accounting for the social factors that the patients are dealing with, especially in underserved areas, right? So we are thinking of a normalized, multidimensional risk categorization, not specifically a score, because I feel a score is misleading. That accounts for all data, all factors of care, all determinants of health, and then kind of directing their focus towards a certain modality of intervention. Again, it's very early, but we're very excited where this can go, you know? Yeah. And something that you said, which I'm thinking about from a value-based care standpoint, right? I think that's the reason why you and me and the entire company and organizations like ourselves are committed to value-based care, Dr. Foxman. I think that by design, it allows for that, hey, outcomes-based, you don't need to be in my office and it doesn't hurt my practice and the efficiency of my practice. You come only when you need to because I get reimbursed. I get my contract renewed based on your outcomes, not how many times Correct. I see it, right? But in enabling that, it's been a 10-year journey for us as an industry to make sense of value-based care. And we've made progress, especially in the five years. In the last five years, we had, we've had we had three times increase in value-based care adoption overall across commercial, Medicare, and Medicaid. But I still see friction between fee-for-service and value-based care mindsets, not so much the contract. How do you look at that friction from a physician standpoint? Well, I think a lot of it is reimbursement. Right. I think the problem with with value based care and the contracts that were out there before was the carrot, the money, the carrot was way out there. In, in the future. So for example, accountable care organizations is a great example. Many accountable care organization contracts for, for, for providers give them a reward much farther down the line than fee for service ever can. Yep. We're talking about eight, you know, 12, 18 months, 20 15, months down months, the line, yep, if yep, you even yep. get it. How do you then transition that provider that is used to getting a paycheck and, and knowing what's going on to someone who's going to potentially get that way down the line? So I think contracting is very important. Reimbursement is very important. I think uh, payment predictability is very important as well. Once you, and then ultimately 
a predictable reward because a lot of people, you know, don't understand that this is a uh, this is a journey. You can't just go from fee for service to value based care and risk based care overnight. There's changes you need to make in your practice, in your mindset, in your flow, in your operation, yeah. in your patience. And yeah. for all of that to happen, it takes time yeah. and it takes patience and it takes good skills, but it also takes very good infrastructure that many practices and normal providers don't have. And that's where I think data comes in. That's where I think what's important, which I want to mention, is not just static data, but we have to have dynamic data as well. And what I mean by dynamic data is data that comes in in real time and is changing based on the patient. Remote patient monitoring is a great example. If you properly use things like blood pressure cuffs and remote scales for hypertension, congestive heart failure, different cardiac arrhythmias, and so forth, you could now capture patients in real time when something is happening between visits, right? Because you would never capture that before. Another example for that would be um, questionnaires, automated questionnaires where the patient might have an app or an email that it asks them from time to time, how are you feeling? Mm. And that leads to other questions. Happy face, middle face, or sad face. If it's a sad face, it leads to further questions, which could then lead to a triage of that patient to maybe be seen sooner than they would maybe with that clinic visit a month down the line. So all those things are very important. ADT feeds, you know, admission, discharge, and transfer. Automated feeds when a patient happens to go maybe to an ER. You know, all these things are very important. And if we could capture those in real time and use them in a very good way, we could significantly improve patient care and reduce costs. As a clinician, do you see that as an opportunity for for AI in healthcare? Yeah. AI is a very hot term. The term before was machine learning. Now it's AI. Yeah. The reality is, is that digital technology, especially digital health technology, is accelerating very, very rapidly. But it has to be properly used. It has to be simplistic. It has to be cost effective for everyone to use it because really not you know, people are are very different. People have high education, people have low education, people have uh, read English, people don't read English. And what we're finding though, at least in my experience, is there's a disparate type of care that occurs for people who are of higher social strength, either financially or, or socially or whatever it might be, to those that are in lower income and lower socioeconomic classes. Those lower socioeconomic classes have a tremendous amount of opportunity. And we really should be concentrating on that to bring them to the level of what we have every else and and that's very important yeah i think that that's a big i think cms is focusing on that with their reach model and their focus on health equity or not i think the thing that i think about on the equity side is we all understand what it's not because we understand the differentiation right but we really don't have an understanding of what it is in the sense because we've never achieved it we've never understood what it means to enable equitable access to care right so i think the next five to ten years will be very interesting when we all come together and allow for the democratization of care whether it's access or cost you know yeah i Um, i I think different just just to prove another point i think different innovative uh healthcare models are very important great example is what we do mobile medical care until you go into a patient's home you really do not know what's going on in their healthcare. you don't know what's in the refrigerator you don't know if there's pill bottles stacked to the ceiling and if they're used or not you don't know if there's things in the home that cause the person to uh, trip or fall you don't know what their support system is you don't know if they have enough money for food yeah and and that's why these types of systems or these types of uh, practices need to be nurtured and really valued and they're actually not these days medicare is not valuing mobile medical care and home-based care as nearly as much as it should be right now and that's just one example of of, I think a, a guidance that needs to be changed within our, our healthcare system to really 
show certain innovative models that really make yeah. changes. Yeah, I think that's that was one of the things that I talked about in uh, what I think will happen in the near future is more care anywhere models, Dr. Foxman. I think CMS has learned that and I think they're enabling it to give them credit. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, I think, something that's very near and dear to you, which is concierge slash direct-to-patient medicine. You know, we are kind of, it's, it's new to us. It's new to me as an entrepreneur, but I'd love to hear from you. What's been your experience? You've been at it hardcore. Uh, you have patients that you serve going into their homes and whatnot. What has been your role? Because you've done the traditional medicine. You've understood value-based medicine. You participated in it. And now you're doing constant direct-to-patient as well. Coaches, what, what, what are you seeing yeah. that you can learn from? Look, it, it all starts out with reimbursement models. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, Practices have to keep the lights on. Practices have to uh, you know, pay their employees. And physicians have to feel valued. And what concierge medicine really does is take away that that urge to have to do more to patients and take it back to really having a good patient-doctor relationship and not having to overutilize, but actually providing the best recommendations and care possible because you're no longer a slave to do more to the patient and you get paid more because the patient's paying you not for doing more services to them. The patient's paying you for your for your insight, for your care, for your time, and for your experience. And though you know, it's very difficult to, um, I think, scale a concierge yeah. practice nationally or to everyone because it's all about, unfortunately, money. There's a lot of things that you pick up in, in concierge care that could be implemented in other in care models as well. As an example, value-based care, you're it's really doing the same thing. You're being you're being rewarded or the provider of the healthcare system is being rewarded not for how much they're doing to the patient, but how well they take care of the patient. What kind of relationships they have? Does the patient trust the provider? Are you doing the right things for the patient to keep them healthier? Because if you are, it's going to cost less money. And that's exactly what we could get from concierge type of care or direct care is that it's not all about just overutilizing the system. Right. It's about really mending and, and nurturing those relationships and providing just the best possible recommendations and care as opposed to doing more. You're absolutely right, Dr. Foxman. Even I've thought about concept medicine. I've tried to understand the model based on conversations I've had, things I've learned. I've always believed they have a seat in the table, you know, but it has to be in a hybrid design in the nature of thinking about a community. Concierge at home-based care has a role to play for those patients that don't need to be seen in a more chronic setting. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, um, I'll give you an example. So yeah, with that sure. kind of model, with that, with that insight, I get approached all the time by private payer insurances that have my data and want me to start participating more and more in commercial capitated programs Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they see the type of care that I'm providing. They're saying, you know, you're already providing a a very high value to the patient. You have high quality metrics. You have great reputation online. You get very high scores and yet your costs for the overall healthcare system are very low. So that just shows that that the model works. It's just about being properly rewarded for it. So are you taking on those uh, opportunities? Are you Absolutely. considering going? Yeah, so, so I've uh, started with the Blue Shield of California. We're in a fully capitated program and it's working great. Awesome. More, more, more power to you, Dr. Foxman. Thank you so much. So this is going to be a brief conversation with you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I learn from you every time. But I can't let you go until I ask you a fun question. Sure. Are you ready? Yeah. This is going to be the most difficult question of the podcast. Okay, because I've been known not to be very fun, by the way. <laughs> I try. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you could invent any medical invention that has not been discovered yet or invented yet, technology or otherwise, what would it be and why? Something that has not been invented yet 
in medicine? Uh, you know, as a as a physician, I'm sure you have yeah, a long list. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I the thing that I think uh, causes the most frustration is not being able to see the patient at any time. So I would say a teleporter. Nice. I can teleport myself, my staff, yeah. anyone yeah. right to where the patient is, and being able to manage them just as if you're in the office. Now, you know, teleportation is going to be a little more challenging, but you know, all of the different things like augmented reality. Yeah. And AI and and wearables and all these different things. I mean, some of these shows have amazing, amazing, amazing technology yeah. out there already. And I think we're very, very close to being almost teleporting into a person's uh, place of, of living or, or home very soon. Awesome, Dr. Foxman. Thank you so much, sir. We appreciate your time today. Thank you again for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Always, always happy to come back. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to our channels. Episodes will be posted once a month with a variety of industry leaders. And you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as a garage. Have a good one.